Well, this platform is one that will include many voices. In fact, I think this may be the most voices. We may be setting a record here, folks, for the most voices in platform. Some of you who have been around 20 and 30 years will have to tell me if that's true. There's a number of groups here at West that have been working on different aspects of um, privilege work, anti-racism work, racial equality, and racial equity work. And out of much of that work have come the voices that you will hear today. They are, of course, not the only voices working on this and thinking about this at West. And one of the reasons that we have so many, and they'll be sharing words that others of you have written, is that what we'd like is to have you hear the conversation as it has been and continues to evolve in the West community, a conversation around race and racism, what that means for us in our society here and in society at large. Four of our speakers have taken an online class called Hard Conversations, which was offered for the second time through the month of October, and have engaged with each other and with people all around the country taking that class. And so they'll be speaking a little bit about what they have learned there, what's been an awakening for them. And then we are delighted to have one of our teens speaking as well. Greer just participated in the Youth in Ethical Societies Conference, which had as its um, topic, Race in Modern America. We sent uh, several of our teens along with Thomas Allen, who advises the teen group uh, with Robin Kravitz, out to St. Louis. And so we're pleased that Greer will be speaking, really, I think, on behalf of the teens that went to that conference. And then you'll hear throughout the platform the words that will also be shown on the screen from submissions to the Race Card Project all through the month of November. You all have been invited to write six words that come to mind when you think of the word race. And some of those words will be shared today. Some will loop on the screen during our music selection after the platform. And all of the submissions we've received have also been pinned up on a board um, in the social hall along with blank cards. So if you have not yet participated and would like to, you are very welcome to. Again, that's a way for us to participate actually in a national project. You can go to the racecardproject.org, I think it is, and read people's submissions from all over the country and perhaps all over the world. There are six words about race. We wanted you to hear some of your words, part of what all of us are thinking about as we think about race in our community. And so I'd like to invite up our first speaker now. The speakers are listed in your program in alphabetical order, but you'll be hearing them in a different order. You'll hear first from Mary, then from Lindsay, then Perry, Susan, and Greer. And in between, you'll be hearing some of the words from the Race Card Project, which will be read by members of the Working for Racial Equity team. Greetings. White privilege is an overt system of racial favoritism established by law. 
Think of the U.S. Constitution, where black men were considered property. The Homestead Act, where 15 million acres were taken from indigenous people and given at low or no cost to white settlers. Plessy versus Ferguson, in which separate but equal was established or was made national. The GI Bill, which had funds for home buying and for education, was used primarily by white veterans. Banks were not giving loans for people buying houses in black communities, and black veterans were not welcome in white communities. Consider the long-term effects of these laws. Housing and land ownership influences the ability to accumulate wealth in this country and thereby to afford an education, get a job, establish a career. Without house buying and selling and buying and selling at ever-increasing costs, we have no wealth. Most of the wealth in this country is accumulated through owning houses. Recent practices are more covert. The war on drugs, stop and frisk, racial profiling, stand your ground, three strikes you're out, unequal penalties for crack and powder cocaine and heroin, criminalization of school conduct. All of these influence who stays in school and who is incarcerated, who votes and whose right to vote is taken from them. We as white people can use our white privilege every day to benefit African Americans. This is important to me because I didn't always use my privilege well. Back in the day, a black co-trainer made a big mistake with a student who challenged her. I was stunned, appalled, afraid, angry, silent. She was rightfully furious with me. I learned she wanted and needed me to speak up when she couldn't or was too upset to do so. Since then, I speak up more. At meetings, I make sure that black participants are seen and heard and recognized first by the facilitator. At work, following a comment about an often criticized black colleague, I simply said, I think she's the most undervalued underappreciated administrator we have here at the grocery store. I may notice and speak out tentatively when I see that a black woman is being asked to give three pieces of identification to cash a check, or I was asked for only one. I may say to the cashier, I'd like to better understand the process here for cashing checks. What is, what is the, the store's policy? I think I'm missing something. I was asked for one ID. She was asked for three. Can you help me understand this? I encourage you to use your white privilege to say what a black person may want to say and be unable to say in the moment. Remember, you risk embarrassment or making a mistake. A black person risks physical or personal harm and abuse. Thank you.
Several years ago, I had the unpleasant shock of discovering that a direct ancestor of my father owned slaves in Richmond, Virginia in 1820. It's right there in the census records. I thought I dealt with that. On the other hand, my mother's grandmother moved from Ohio to Virginia, and my mother talked a lot about how she preferred the liberal racial attitudes in Ohio to the overt racism that she experienced in Virginia, and she loved to brag about an ancestor of ours who did one really good anti-racist thing. So I thought, I'm in good shape. I'm not racist. If there's anybody who's not racist, it's me. Well, I was wrong. My journey began in Barbara Walker's diversity discussion group and progressed through the Jubilee training and has so far been capped off by the hard conversations class. With Barbara's encouragement, I started paying attention, more attention to myself, and I realized that there are times when I myself judge a white person, a black person doing something more harshly than if I had seen a white person do the same thing. And that was the beginning. In the Jubilee training, I remember asking, uh, how come we talk about black and white when we're really all shades of brown? (laughs) And this dear patient leader explained that the words black and white are manifestations of our racist construct in this country. So I now use both words in order to show that I am aware of the white supremacist construct here. And I believe that in this culture, it is almost impossible not to be socialized into that construct. Patty Dye's hard conversations class, and this is really hard to talk about without crying, showed videos of interviews with blacks who revealed the pain and anger that they felt in dealing with the stream of slights and worse that they're constantly confronted with. Witnessing this pain, which is usually hidden from whites, um, probably because they tend to dismiss it when they hear a black say, oh, I wasn't waited on in that restaurant because I'm black, and the whites say, oh, no, I'm sure that's not why. She probably just didn't see you. you know, so blacks shield us from their pain and anger. So this was a rare uh, experience to be able to see behind that curtain, and it really motivated me in a way that nothing else has to make every change I can possibly make. And Mary talked about some of them. I have a couple more to add. Um, For starters, I built myself a pantheon of black heroes. I I had read that this helps whites to overcome their sense of superiority. So my list includes some obvious choices, Nelson Mandela, let's see, Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, even President Obama. But I also have a couple that I know in flesh and blood. Um, Many of us remember Daryl Davis, the fantastic musician who made friends with members of the KKK. And uh, then there's Brian Stevenson, who is a Harvard lawyer who founded the Equal Justice Initiative and wrote the book Just Mercy. They're all magnificent people. Uh, Second, I take responsibility to change the narrative when I can. Uh, For example, if somebody talks about, you know, they're colorblind or they think being colorblind is good or whatever, I say, I learned in hard conversations to say, I choose to be color curious 
because I am pretty sure that blacks have had different experiences than I have, and I'd like to learn more about that. Third, I maintain hope. I maintain belief in the possibility of change and in my ability to make a difference in the world. I have some ideas for doing other things, doing more, and I hope, I'm sure many of you do too, I'm looking forward to a process where we talk together about those ideas, decide which ones to act on, and then go out and take action. So my name is Perry Sedman, and not the other Perry. So this Hard Conversations course has changed my life. I now realize that as a white person raised in a white supremacist society, I am a racist that benefits from a racist system. I say this without guilt and without shame. I was simply breathing the air. It is true of all white people, even you. I now realize that rather than just standing in solidarity with black people, I need to set my own comfort aside, screw up my courage, and engage other white people about white supremacy. I now realize that I need to use my white privilege to join activist organizations that are busy making trouble. I now realize the interconnection between racism, sexism, and all forms of bias and prejudice. I feel like several layers of my skin have been pulled back, exposing my nerves that now more than ever feel the tremendous inequities that pervade our society. My increased sensitivity has actually caused me to see people differently these days, to interact with them differently, and to change my behavior. I am kinder, more courteous, more patient with everyone, but especially with people of color and women. When my firm recently hired a new legal assistant, I pushed to hire a black woman rather than a white woman who actually looked better on paper. This made up in a very small way for my racism that in the past would have likely caused me to hire the white woman. Unlike my past behavior, I have sought out black friends and engaged in conversations with them about what it was like for them to grow up black. These are first baby steps for me. Know that I urgently feel a need to fight injustice against all oppressed people and work for collective liberation. Now, coincidentally, right in the middle of this Hard Conversations course, Chris Crass came to Wes to speak about anti-racism. How many of you were here for that? Unbelievable, right? So I bought his book on collective liberation, and I'm reading through it slowly and deliberately to let it soak in. It's 
very heavy. He has become, however, a hero of mine, an inspiration, and I just want to share something from his book which kind of eloquently reflects my own thoughts and feelings, if I might. Quote, My goal isn't to be a great ally. My goal is the abolition of white supremacist capitalist patriarchy and the building up of multiracial democracy, economic, gender, and racial justice for all and a world where the inherent worth and dignity of all people and the interconnection of life are at the heart of our cultures, institutions, and policies. If being an ally, he said, is useful to further this shared movement vision, then be an ally and be effective. If bringing leadership is helpful at times, bring it and rock it. But overall, the underlying goal of this vision is to be a good comrade, giving what we can to the larger movement and to team liberation of which we are a part. Strive to be a comrade with a political framework committed to building up other people's leadership, building up collective power, being able to read situations and act for the best of our goals, and being able to love ourselves and our people. Let us continue, he says, to grow and learn through lessons from theory applied to practice in the messy, beautiful, and nuanced reality of life. Let us be expansive while also being grounded. Eyes on the prize, hearts on fire, lead with values, compassion, and a fundamental belief grounded in history of everyday people's ability to bend the arc of the universe towards justice and change what is politically possible to make collective liberation a reality step by step. He concludes, at the end of the day, what we call ourselves is less important than how we treat people, the values we practice, the goals and visions that guide us, and the beloved community we are building on the journey to all get free, unquote. Now, Chris's latest book just came out, and those of you who are interested can get it free online. It's called Towards the Other America, Anti-Racist Resources for White People Taking Action for Black Lives Matter. It's a call to action to end white silence and a manual on how to do it. bias gives racism continual light. Walk a mile in my skin. Race is a West politically correct topic. Frowny face. I don't think in that term. Good morning. My name is Susan Runner. Remembrances. My mother telling me that you must be much better than anyone else because you're black. Stories of what happened to her as a Howard University student wanting to go to social work school to get a master's degree and the University of West Virginia said we don't allow blacks here and paying for her to go to the University of Chicago. Going to Tufts University and being told by one of maybe 10 black students 
but I didn't, didn't I know that I had to give up my white roommate my freshman year. Going into my junior year at Tufts, my roommate of two years going abroad for the year, so planning on rooming with another woman from Rhode Island. Lots of quiet chatter around the edges. Her parents would not let her room with me because I am black. During a residency at the University of Illinois Hospital in oral surgery, only woman in the residency, sitting with the wives of the other residents casually, I fade into the background of whiteness as one woman says casually, looking at an old Cadillac, oh, you know what kind of car that is? It's a nigger car. No one blinks an eye or looks at me. And finally, my sister, who's the interim head of the Chicago Urban League, gives four press conferences this past weekend after the shooting of a young man in Chicago, 16 times in 15 seconds. Tanahishi Coates says, belief in being white was not achieved through wine tastings and ice cream socials, but rather through the pillaging of life, liberty, labor, and land. Tanahishi Coates talks about the black body. Here is what I would like you to know, America. It is traditional to destroy the black body. It is heritage. I would like to add that growing up as an upper-middle-class person of color with more privilege than most, it is clear to me that it is also traditional in this country to destroy the black mind, giving you doubts, making you cry inside, and wondering every time you walk into a majority room, what are they thinking about me? What do I have to prove? And will I be okay? I do have to say that being at home at West in this majority community is okay because we acknowledge the work that has to be done. Genetically inconsequential, but socially not so. Guilt, sadness, together, complicit, no more. Face the truths, act together. Um, good morning, I'm Greer. Um, so I did not do the hard conversations class, as Amanda said, um, but I did go to Yes. And so uh, the ethical community and West in general, we talk a lot about racism and police brutality and the people that have been killed by the police, but I think that for the most part, as everyone else has said, um, racism is kind of an abstract not for all of us here, but for a lot of people. It's not something that we experience. Um, sometimes we see it, or and we think, like, as um, someone else said, we see it, and we're like, oh, that wasn't racism. That was, they just didn't see them. Um, and initially I had written a whole speech about, like, the power of words and names, and, um, and honestly I feel like my personal feelings and opinion right now are not super important. 
Um, I know, like, Wes does, everyone's feelings and opinions matter, but I think when addressing this community right now, um, it's not what I want to share. Instead, I ask, who are these people that have been killed by the police? Who is John Crawford III? Who is Sandra Bland? Who is Tamir Rice? Not only what happened to them, but who were they? Do we know? Do we know what their kids' names are? Do we know who they were? Can anyone tell me? Because part of supporting Black Lives Matter is knowing who these people are and who, what their names are, because they matter. Names give personhood. Knowing who someone is gives personhood. Saying, black man shot by the police, that takes away agency. That takes away personhood. Because words, like memories, have teeth. Thank you. Words like memories have teeth. Greer, thank you for those words. Thank you all for your calls to action, your experiences of your own lives and your own learning. As we prepared for this platform, I asked a gathered group from the Working for Racial Equity team, what should I make sure that people take away from this? What do we want to make sure they know? And Laura Bradshaw, who was one of our readers today, said, I think everyone should know that there's a place for every person in this conversation, regardless of your comfort level. There were nods around the room as the team agreed, that's right, All of us are on a journey. All of us are learning, relearning, imagining, and reimagining. And one of the most important things is for us to stay in conversation through that learning. There is a place for everyone in this conversation. As you continue to see the words projected on the screen or as you read them in the social hall and perhaps add your own, may those words for you be an opening and a beginning, a continuing of the conversation we have here. Coming up in January, we have a number of offerings that the Working for Racial Equity team is supporting There's another Hard Conversations class online. And here at West, we'll have a three-hour workshop on a Saturday in January called uh, offered by the woman who runs White Awake, a class, an introductory class on white privilege and anti-racism. There's also a weekend-long jubilee training offered at All Souls that folks can go to. And Laura Bradshaw will be facilitating an ongoing monthly group, as yet unnamed, (laughs) We've been wrestling with the words. Words carry such meaning. But a group that 
allows for tiptoeing into this conversation, a safe space if you're unsure, uncomfortable, and need a place to explore. Dana Pope is also able to sign you up for the Working for Racial Equity list if you would like to know when our next meeting is. It'll be coming up in the month of December. There is a place for everyone in this conversation, regardless of your comfort level. We hope that you are discomforted, that you are awake, and that you stay in the conversation.